The following is a North Carolina Baptist resource. For more, visit ncbaptist.org. I'm Tom Knight. I work with the Baptist State Convention of North Carolina, and I'm in the Collegiate Partnerships team. And so we work with churches to help churches do collegiate ministry. I am Gen X, which I like to call the Prince Charles of generations. We're the generation that people just want to get out of the way so that the the millennials can take over, right? And of course, everybody loves boomers, right? They had the cool music, the cool cars, and they're great. But uh, I, I really came of age during the Reagan years, during the Cold War. And so Bruce Jenner, for me, was a Cold War hero who won the decathlon and took it back from the East Germans, I believe. Uh, and so that's the context when I think of Bruce Jenner. Uh, I graduated... In- <laughs> Yeah, our, our Gen Z uh, friends see him very differently, or her, whatever. I, uh, I graduated in the 84, the, what I call the class of Orwell, big brother uh, year, and um, we had no internet, uh, very, very few computers. We didn't even have cable TV in my house, so I was not plugged in 24-7 to uh, the world that was out there. Uh, I did get to play a video game, Atari. So if you have a if you have a reprint of a T-shirt or a game, I actually had the real thing. So, um, and and I am a fifth generation uh, NC native, which is uh, very hard to find these days. So one of the things about our Gen Z uh, generation um, is that people are moving and changing and going from here to there. So that's part of the dynamic. So. Uh, Actually, um, I did a similar breakout three years ago on this topic, and um, since then we've had a lot of uh, books and some new data and some new things come out about Generation Z. And so a couple of books that came out in 2017 were iGen by Jean Twinge, which is very interesting, and she talks about how this generation is completely unprepared for adulthood. And then we had Senator Ben Sass, who wrote The Vanishing American Adult, The Coming Crisis uh, in, in Adulthood. So uh, an interesting, interesting kind of uh, material coming out about some of the uh, problems with Gen Z. But we're not going to bash Gen Z. We're here to talk about some trends, things that I call frames of looking at this generation. And then we're going to try to find some points of contact with them. All right. So if you have questions, hopefully we'll have some time at the end to talk about questions. So when I did this three years ago, there was no real consensus about what was Generation Z as far as um, time frame. But since then, uh, Pew Research came out, and they called it from 97 to 2012. And they also decided to go with the term Generation Z. And so we're probably going to see that stick, um, though there's some other terms and dates out there, but... I'm going to go with this because I think it's fairly accurate and most people are going to, are going to use this term anyway. Um, so millennials would be 81 to 96. Then uh, the greatest generation, no, just kidding. Uh, Gen, Gen X would be 65 to 80. Um, and then we have boomers, 46 to 64. And then the silent generation, um, back in the 20s to early 40s, uh, which, uh, you know, a generation that's quickly leaving us. 
Um, so those are, that's the frame I'm using for those generations. Now, I mean the timelines. So the frames I want to talk to you today, um, it's a couple of ways of looking at things. So we're going to talk about Gen Z as a large generation, a very diverse generation. Um, we're going to look at these uh, issues of the digital age with always being on. Um, we're going to talk about safe and insecure, some things we didn't talk about three years ago as much. And then we're going to talk about indef in indefinite and irreligious. And some of those, uh, I lifted some of those terms from uh, Dr. Twinge's book, IGEN, because it was a good way to um, help us remember it. So the first thing is the large generation. Gen Z is a very, Gen Z is a very large generation. Um, it's just as big as millennials, perhaps bigger. Uh, some people say it's just a little bit over, a little bit bigger. This is, this is a bad graphic, but anyway, it just shows you that it's a huge proportion of our population. And so um, we can't just ignore it, right? We can't just ignore uh, Gen Z. It's going to make up a huge uh, part of our population, and it's going to be a very important generation for us to reach as we see as we go um, further into this. Now, the other thing that's very... Uh, that's very important is the diversity issue. And, and, you know, at the time when we were doing research about millennials, we called them the most diverse generation. But now Gen Z is even more diverse than millennials. And so uh, I think we need to really grab, you know, grapple with this and get our minds around it that um, pretty soon our population, uh, we're going to have a, a majority, you know, minority nation where there is no dominant uh, people group, race, everything is going to be under 50%. And so that's going to change a lot of dynamics in how we think about things. Um, and that's even happened with a lot of the children, uh, as we see here, under five, 50% um, of children under five are minorities. Um, multiracial children are the fastest growing community in the youth group. And I, and I have two multi racial kids, so I, I, I'm sort of a product of that, um, my family. And uh, Hispanics are going to be about 29% of the population by 2060. Um, according to, yeah, if things, we don't know. That's what's projected. That's what's projected. So um, these first two things, the largeness of the generation and the diversity, those are things that we cannot change, really. Those are sort of hardwired um, unless, unless you start getting all of your kids and grandkids to have more kids, you know. Um, but uh, those are some things that are just givens, and we have to be able to deal with it, right? We have to be able to figure out how to work with it. And then some of the other trends and some of the other issues we talk about are things that we can influence uh, more, okay? So this little gizmo here has really changed a lot in, in our society, uh, even for old folks like me. Uh, I do have an iPhone and, and use it. But for people who are much younger, that's really all they know, right? That's one of the things that the Internet, uh, computers, social media, iPhones, all these things is readily accessible and it's normal to them. And so we'll talk a little bit that as we go on. And just a refresher, so iPhone was released, released in 2007 and the iPad in 2010. Um, but it took several years after that for us to reach a 
saturation point. Okay, so we'll talk a little bit about that as we go on. So this first thing, um, one of the major differences between uh, Gen Z and even millennials is um, they've been able to adapt to uh, internet, iPhone, social media, uh, 24/7 very early. Um, one of the, some of the things that we see is they're a lot more. It's a lot more normal for them to have virtual friendships. And uh, I moved, what you looking for? It's over here, yeah, thank you, no problem. Um, uh, we're starting to see things with the time span deficiencies where everyone is moving from, uh, you know, from web page to web page to you know, clicking to this to clicking to that and back and forth. And, and by, by the way, I have two Generation Z kids too, so I'm, I'm, some of this is from life experience. Um, but we also are starting to see uh, rising depression um, in this generation. Uh, they tend to be, spend more time alone. And uh, again, saturation point, 95% have access to smartphones of some sort. So the idea that they're going to be cut off um, and uh, spending time focusing on, uh, you know, just when it says time alone, it doesn't mean they're just home by themselves without connecting. They're home alone, but they're connected to all of these things out there. Um, and so that's one of the dynamics of that. Okay. It's not like when I could just go to a library and spend hours and have no contact with the outside world. Um, these days you, you can go to the library and be connected with all these other you know, organizations and people and friends while you're trying to do your homework. So one of the things we've seen is a rise in the internet uh, hours per day. So if you look at this back in 2006, it was about an hour a day. And now we're, you know, we're pushing towards two hours and probably beyond this. Um, and these are, you know, eighth, ninth, 10th and 12th graders. And so that's a lot of time to be on the internet every day. And recently, some other surveys um, have shown that, uh, say, in 2014, about 24% said they were always online, and now it's up to 45%. So there's a huge jump. I mean, that's always online, right? So they've always got something open, and, and they're looking at it and thinking about it and talking. Um, and you see that... Uh, several times a day shrinking and the less often shrinking. So there's this, um, there's this connection to the rest of the world and messages that are always coming in and friendships uh, being uh, made and created um, and less time maybe face-to-face -face with people in uninterrupted conversation. And I think if you will... Uh, Observe if you can observe that for a while and just watch people. You'll you'll see some of that. Um, now the other thing is um, entertainment, just in general. Um, now this includes TVs, computers, music, everything. But um, when we get down to the teens, it's about seven hours a day, and so that's why we can say always on, right? Now some of that may just be listening to music, but a lot of times what this is. And one of the problems is, is that it's constantly going back and forth from different types of things where you're having to navigate and switch. 
and you're not really focusing, they're not really focusing on the task that they're trying to get done as much. Um, that's what I see in, in my own kids. That's what I see um, as I observe their friends. Um, so that may, you may have observed this too. And, and, and it's true. People had records. I understand that. People had records, for those of you who remember records, and you listen to music while you're doing something. But in those situations, a lot of times, even my own day, that was more of a, you know, it was a background noise, but you weren't constantly necessarily interacting and switching and, and you know, flipping back and forth all the time. Now, what's interesting uh, about all this is um, a book I read called Irresistible, and uh, he quotes a journalist who was talking to Steve Jobs, um, and he, was, he noticed that uh, when he was there in, in Mr. Jobs' house, he didn't, have a, he didn't see any iPads out, and he started talking. And this is what Steve Jobs said in 2010. Um, he said that we, we limit how much technology our kids use in the home. And uh, so he, he actually didn't allow them to use it much. And I've read a couple of articles from um, interviews with a lot of these uh, developers, say Facebook, Google, uh, big names you would know. And they actually make a lot of the staff people that work with them sign contracts that say they will not use their iPhones while they're working with their kids. Um, so... I think you're getting the message here, right? They even know that there's a lot of problems going on with too much technology. And we'll, we'll see a little bit more of that. Um, so I think that, we, I think that we know this part, that everybody's using an iPhone, that it's constantly out there. We all, a lot of us in here use an iPhone. But I think that part of the things that we're starting to develop and see is how addictive um, a lot of social media is and the use of iPhones. And what Dr. Twinge did is she had been doing, uh, uh, she's a psychologist, been doing a lot of research. She started to notice some trends with depression um, with younger people. And so we'll talk about that. But the other thing that developed during this whole time was a realization of something that we call safetyism. Um, it's a long-term trend that started uh, probably back in the 80s. Um, and it's not any one organization or any one group, but just a general trend of trying to make things more safe. Um, and so, you know, my freshman year in college, it was anything goes for 18-year-olds, right? Um, but we saw that uh, raised to 21. Um, my kids are doing driver's ed right now. They have to log in 60 hours. I, I just, when I was 16, I could go get my license. I didn't have to log in any hours. I just took a test and went and got my license, right? Uh, I remember, I remember the, the high school guys driving the bus home after school, right? Okay? We're not, they're not doing that anymore. Um, the homicide rate, I didn't realize until I did this research how bad the teen homicide rate was back in the 80s and 90s. Um, and we've lowered that. We have bicycle helmets. Uh, no secondhand smoke. Um, we went through all of the child uh, abduction awareness back with um, America's Most Wanted and the milk cartons. And so, uh, and, I, and I, I still say suntan lotion, but it's sunblock, we say now. But all of these things 
um, has just compounded to make these uh, younger generations a very safe generation. Um, but what we're also going to see is they're very insecure. And part of all of this safetyism, it's helped them to be safe and, and, and the homicide rates have gone down. But we're also uh, seeing that it's also making them more docile in a lot of ways. Um, so we'll check that out in just a second here. So here's, here's some of the things at home. Some of the trends that are coming out of that are Generation Z is working less. So they're not going outside you know, in the summers and working and after school as much. Um, they're drinking less, and, and that's good. Um, they're having sex less, which is also good. You know, from a Christian standpoint, um, they're driving less, though. That's interesting, too. Um, even though they can get a driver's license, a lot of them don't want to. Right. Well, if I had to log in 60 hours with my parents, I'd probably I may not want to either. But anyway, um, and they're going out less as far as dating. So they don't necessarily go out and date. Um, and so what Dr. Twinge was saying is that though some of these are good factors, it tends to show a much more uh, docile generation, not as rebellious as those during the 60s and 70s, perhaps, even 80s to some degree. Um, there's even, there was even one graph where it, she shows that Gen Z doesn't fight with their parents as much, right? Um, and what we're going to see also is when they go to college, they're much more likely to see this college as a parent, uh, as opposed to in the 60s where the whole notion of the college being uh, in loco parentis was, a, was a, something they, they were rebelling against, you know, break down all these rules and we, we want the college out of our way. We can handle it. We can take care of everything. And so Generation Z is a lot less likely to, to do that. And in fact, uh, this book came out in 18, 2018, I believe. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. And so uh, Mr. Uh, Lukanoff here and Haidt, one is, works uh, on the college and one is the president of a free speech uh, Nonprofit promotes free speech. And they both noticed that there was uh, a lot of differences going on with the college campus and how people were even feeling hurt by people saying something that they didn't agree with, right? And so that's where we started seeing the safe spaces and the trigger warnings and um, the uh, shutting down of people who say things that we don't agree with. And they really did start to notice that um, a lot of students felt like the school should be their parent and the school should step in and tell them what to do and what not to do. And um, so it was really interesting. And some of the things that they talked about, again, are the safe zones, hate, hate speech seen as aggression, um, the administration as a parent, over-reliance on a parent, on a, on a, I'm sorry, over-reliance on parents, um, and so these are some of the things that I think that a lot of us in this room don't necessarily resonate with in our experience. Um, I, I know I'm starting to sound like my dad when I talk, but when I was when I was in college, we didn't talk to our parents because a it was too expensive and b we really didn't want to. Um, and so it's shocking to me when I you know hear about people who talk to their parents every day. And, and I wonder, you know, 
why would you want to do that? You know, people who, who talk to their parents are about their schoolwork, you know, and help getting help, getting, you know, all that kind of stuff. My, my parents, we never had conversations about my schoolwork. Is it maybe at Christmas or, you know, what, how did things go? Eh, it was okay, you know. That was about it. I never would have called my parents to ask them a question about a course I was taking. You know, because they, they would just say, well, you're there. You you handle it. You know, you deal with it. So those are some of the differences. And, and part of that is because technology has allowed us to build those bridges so closely. Um, and, but the problem is sometimes it's it, this generation is over reliant on other people to step in and, and help them and speak to them. Now, there's some good things about being able to call your mom and dad. I, I understand that. Um, my, my wife uh, talks to, to some of her family in China. They can FaceTime. They can do all these great things. There's a lot of good things in this kind of technology. So it's not, it's not that the technology is bad. It's just that what, what do we do with it? And do we become over-reliant on it? Now, I've never watched this show, but it's called Stranger Things. Some of you may have seen this. But I, I just stumbled across this quote one day. And it said that part of the reason, part of what they were trying to get at in this show is is that we want to capture that pre-internet feeling of friendship when you ventured out into the world together, completely untethered, with only each other to rely on, and with the possibility of adventure always just around the corner. And those are the, um, I think there's two brothers who are the producers of that. And so it's really interesting. I just thought this is so strange that we're, you know, we're developing a, a, a TV show to try to capture the feeling of what it was like before everybody was on the Internet. So it shows you another, you know, another disconnect there that a lot of these uh, Gen Z kids have never experienced life without the Internet, without the phone, of driving somewhere without a phone in your car, you know, of driving somewhere with, uh, without a GPS, Right. All those kinds of things. And so, again, it's not that I'm trying to um, romanticize the past, but what I would want us to get, get across is they have no experience of that. So when when we try to maybe push them into that, some, they can't go there mentally the way I can, because I, I can remember a time without computers, without GPS and without cell phones and without smartphones, without Internet. And so I can make that shift, but they can't, not, from, not experimentally. experientially. Um, so the other thing uh, is from uh, Dr. Twins from the iGen book. One of the things that she started to see was the depression and the, the insecurity in her work. And so she has a good quote. This is a blurb on her book, but I thought, I thought, it, uh, I thought it sort of... Uh, encapsulated a lot, of, a lot of the truth here, is that the devices they hold in their hands have both extended their childhoods and isolated them from true human interaction. As a result, they are both, physic- they are both the physically safest generation and the most mentally fragile. Now, that's a pretty bold statement, right? So, and we can have a lot of cliches and over-the-top Kind of reactions, but what I love about her book is she goes through and she uses a lot of uh, sociological research to back that up. And we'll look at a few a few things of that, uh, a few 
uh, graphs of that. But I think that that's a really good synopsis that they're the physically safest, but the most mentally fragile. And of course, now we can't say that everyone in Gen Z is like that, but there's a lot of trends that we can see in that. Um, this is her book, iGen. Um, I'm not selling these books. It's not, I don't, but anyway, I, I, it helped me a lot. So if you get a chance to, to see that, you might want to read it. Um, why today's super connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood. So that's, that's her subtitle. So um, let's look at a couple of the graphs that she pulls. She uses several different um, uh, organizations that do surveys and have been doing these surveys since the 60s and 70s. Um, a lot of them are for high school kids and a lot of them are for entering freshmen in college. And so the beauty of what she can do is she can show you that data going back to the 60s and 70s and compare it. And so for, uh, you know, in this one, um, this is people saying that they uh, often feel left out. I feel left out of things. And you can see that there's a huge spike there about 2010, 2011, um, which is about four years after the cell phone came out. And so by that point, we had re reached a saturation point. And uh, so that huge spike, though, is female students. And so one of the things we do see is a disproportionate amount of female students who are feeling left out of things and feeling isolated and feeling um, suicidal and depressed. And the more she dug into this, she thinks it is because of the ubiquitous nature of the iPhone and social media. And so that's what she's pushing, right? So I think that that's something we need to be thinking about, not just, not just, for, um, not just for female students, but we need to be aware of that, right? Just like uh, video games, we talk a lot about video games, and that disproportionately affects uh, guys, but there's, uh, there's also this trend going on with female students. Um, Let's look at uh, this. So um, undergraduate college students who seriously considered suicide. Um, this data comes out from about 2011. And you can see it's just a steady incline um, going up. And those are, those are, uh, those are percentages. So that's 11%. I mean, that's, to me, that's a pretty high percent. Um, and so there's something going on with that. Now, the next slide, um, depression. I feel depressed. I've shown uh, signs of depression. I've shown symptoms. Again, it was actually trending down overall. I mean, there's ups and downs. I mean, this goes back to 89, so not that far, not that long ago. Uh, but um, then you see this huge spike uh, around 2012 or so. And again, she's looking at this and she's going, what is going on? Something is happening. And uh, so she keeps pushing that and looking into it. And, and again, she says it's, it's the social media and the uh, cell phones. Uh, now, we're not going to keep, we're going to limit this, but I, I wanted to get this point across, all right? Um, these are people who 
are thinking about, these are 12th graders looking at self-comp, I like myself and self-confidence, right? I feel good about, my, about myself, I feel confident about myself. And, and we see this just, um, I mean, just a collapse here in, a, you know, in about four years ago. Um, and so it's, okay, why? You know, why? What is happening with this generation? What, what are they, what, what, is, what is affecting them so greatly that this would fall down? And when you look at it back here to 89, I mean, it's, it's dropping, right? A um, couple more things. And, and one of the saddest things, um, this is, um, uh, we're looking at um, suicide rates. And... I didn't associate suicide with, with younger people. I, I just felt like younger people had everything, you know, the world, you know, the world's before them. They have all this exciting, you know, things to live for. Um, but we've actually seen the suicide rate after been falling for a number of years uh, going back up. And uh, this is the thing that blew my mind. And I, I had to get this next slide out of another book. So it's not as it's not as good. But this huge, uh, looks like a mountain, Mount Doom from Lord of the Rings, you know, this huge, this huge mountain, this was the teen homicide rate, okay? I didn't know, I lived through the 80s somehow, I didn't know it was that bad, um, and uh, again, that's not a percentage, but it's a rate, and what has happened is we have brought that down, which is great, that, that whatever has worked to, to stop kids killing each other. But now uh, the suicide rate is higher than the homicide rate. So these, these Gen Z kids are more likely to commit suicide than for another kid to kill them, right? Or some other person to kill them. And so I thought that was pretty, pretty sad and pretty eye-opening. And that is the second highest cause of death in this generation is suicide. The only, you know, the largest one is, are accidents, Okay, which makes sense. Uh, but even that, look at that. We brought the accidents down, partly because we make them log in 60 hours of driving. And we've explained to them, you know, the, the, the problems of dream, drinking and driving and, and, and texting and driving. Um, so there's something going on. And so I think that one of the things come out of this for me was, I think we need to be aware of this depression, this potential for depression and suicide. I mean, I've talked to some, um, some people who are doing ministry with female college students, and, and they, they say, yes, we are experiencing um, female students who are depressed, who are suicidal, who feel like they cannot cope while they're in college. Um, and, and we didn't see that before. Um, I've talked to uh, counselors who say, yes, Counseling is, is flooded with people in college trying to get counseling. Um, so it's not, you know, the anecdotal evidence and the uh, statistical an, uh, evidence are, are in agreement that there's a problem, okay? And then I uh, just want to get this across again. Female students um, are more, uh, are, seem to be impacted more. So... Um, 31% of freshman females experienced overwhelming anxiety and panic attacks. But in 2016, the number had grown to 62%, right? So that's a huge increase. Um, 
In 2019, 36% of girls reported being extremely anxious every day, right? We all go through, I mean, we, we can all go through a period of a couple of days, a week, where we're, we're anxious about some big event, but this is every day. Um, and many girls, report, many girls report their mothers as their best friends. So they're not, again, there seems to be a, a, an attachment that they're not able to let go of and and start robust, healthy friendships um, um, with their peers, okay? Now, one thing that, that, that might be a little bit of a silver lining to this is on the narcissism scale. I didn't know there was a narcissism scale, but evidently there is. Um, and uh, on the narcissism scale, uh, Gen Z is starting to become a lot more humble, um, so in one sense, that, 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 um, that, um, that I don't like myself, I'm not confident, that, that can be a problem, but it, it also means that I'm not so self-focused sometimes. I'm a lot, I, I, can, I can be humbled in that situation. So it looks like the millennials are the most narcissistic, uh, but anyway. <clears throat> but uh, anyway. Uh, maybe Gen Z will be a little bit more humble and listen uh, to us as we as we work with them, right? Um, let me go to um, let me go to this next one, which is uh, irreligious, sort of. Now, yeah, I'm sorry about this one. This I, I tried to figure out what to do with this, but I, I ended up just keeping it because it's all over the place. But this this just came out recently, um, and it shows different types of Christian uh, denominations, groups, categories, really categories. And the red line, thankfully for us, the evangelical line is the red line, so that's easy to see. Um, and it looks like we the grid didn't quite come out on there for you guys, but. We peaked at about 30% 93 or so, and we've trended downwards since then. But the one that's uh, just amazing, well, two others, is the mainline churches have just collapsed here uh, over the last uh, uh, 50 years. And then the so-called nuns, the no religion, they really took off right about here and basically match us now. So that... That is the news that you probably hear a lot of, the, the so-called nuns, the growth of the nuns, people who don't associate with any, any religion or any branch of Christianity or just, just anything. Uh, and, I, and I think that's true. That's, that's a problem that we're going to have to address, and that's very true of Generation Z, that more and more of them have no religious experience. Um, they have no background. They have no no experience with uh, Sunday school or church or anything. But there's also another phenomenon that works its way in. Well, let me just stop for a second because I've been talking, talking, talking. Any questions about this? Can everybody understand what I was saying about that? Because it's, it's hard to read, but yes. Curious, I'm noticing that the only two on that chart that are changing uh-huh. are no religion and mainline. Is it possible that the reason those are the only two that are changing and the rest are pretty much staying the same is because the culture has essentially shifted away from cultural Christianity? That could be part of it, for sure. I think a lot of people in the main line, the main line probably a lot of their kids just said, 
eh, it's not really working. It's not, I don't get it. What's the point? And they've just, yeah, they've just. Shoulders are staying pretty. Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. Especially down here, this is pretty, pretty stable. Uh, Catholics, yeah, they've had a really bumpy road, kind of up and down. Um, but they are kind of on the losing end there. Though I've seen, I've seen data for their kids, though. Their kids are starting to drop out more and more, too. So that's an issue, partly because of a lot of the scandals that have been going on. But, yeah. Based on thought of that question, it looks to me, too, that uh, most of the nuns are coming out of the mainline groups. It, it, it's, the other groups are more steady. It's the mainline yeah, that yeah. are losing and the nuns are... Yeah, yeah. And if you drill down, you'll see that Generation Z has a disproportionate number of, of, the, of the nuns <coughs> as well. So, I mean, when you look at it this way, it's just across the board. They don't tell you age. They don't break it down by age necessarily. But if you look at it from an age standpoint, yes, Generation Z is going to have a lot more nuns. N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. Uh, so, yeah. But let me, let me just real quickly talk about this other phenomenon that's um, that's a problem, and that is this thing called moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, this term came out of a sociologist named Christian Smith, um, and he's written a series of books about young people as they transition to adulthood and their faith. What happens to their faith? And so he came up with this term in his research. He did a lot of interviews and surveys. And um, so I'm not going to read this quote, but anyway, he, he says, I, I, can, I can say, it's my theory that the dominant religion among U.S. teenagers is what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. All right. So what is that? What is moralistic therapeutic deism? I'm glad you asked. So. These are the five things, and I think this is something that, that we should look for. And actually, if you, if you jot these down and memorize them, you will see this. And you will see it in your church as well. All right? Uh, the first one is that there is a God who exists. He created and ordered the world, and he watches over life on earth. All right? That, that, okay, that's, that sounds good so far. Uh, but God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and other world religions. But then we get to number three. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Right? Be happy and feel good about yourself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. All right? God's good at problem solving, especially when it helps me. And of course, good people go to heaven when they die. And so this, this phenomenon, um, it, it, it's sort of underlying a lot of what's happening in our culture. And he would say, now he came up with this in 2005, so it applied to millennials as well. But I would say it's carried over as well into Gen Z. Uh, I, I think if you have conversations with people, they would probably say yes to a lot of this. Now, you're going to find more people probably saying, no, there's not a God. But in the end, a lot of times, practically, they will still say that we need to be happy, feel good about ourselves, and treat people uh, nicely. You know, even, even though there's no point to life, we should still be nice to people. 
right? Which is not necessarily connected, but so just be aware of that when you're when you're when you're reaching out to Gen Z, when you're um, when you're sharing with them, is that there may be some some problems about how you define God, right? I mean, there may be you need to drill down and talk more specifically and explain. No, Christianity is not about feeling good and it's not about being happy, and it's the end point of life is not just to be nice to people, right? It's, it's more than that, right? Okay, so uh, we're very close to the end here before, some, before we have some conversations, but um, the other thing I think is very important is this part called indefinite. Indefinite. So this means they're not making decisions uh, as early as they used to, right? So we have a delay in marriage, uh, we have a delay in childbirth, and we have fewer children. That's, that's part of this indefinite. And it's partly because they're not ranking this as very important. Okay? Now, they're delaying marriage, but they're not necessarily re- delaying uh, relationships uh, and things that go along with that, right? So that's, that's the other big problem. Now, um, let's just take a look at this, because just, I just think we need to remind ourselves... Um, that, uh, yeah, in, in 1960, the median age for female marriage was 20 years old. All right? So getting married young has actually been, in the history of the world, a pretty normal thing, right? Um, but in our society, that's just skyrocketed, as you see, until uh, it's, you know, for men, it's getting up close to 30 now. Um, and we're going to see some more statistics that back that up. And right here we go. So as we compare Gen Z and millennials, Gen Z is on uh, this side, on, on the left screen, and millennials are on the right screen. And it tells you, you know, by the age of 30, I want to do something. And just 12% want to have kids by the time they're 30. I mean, I mean... I mean, before they're 30, right? So that's a pretty low, that's a pretty low number, even lower than millennials. I mean, they were down at 21, but that's even lower. Um, and so a lot of them are very, uh, they're, they're very much thinking about education and financial stability. That's, that's the two things that they're really pushing. And these other relationships, marriage relationship is just pushed to the bottom. It's like, I don't even think about it. I don't need that. I don't want to go there. Anyway, um, then this, uh, just to kind of put this together, um, this just came out too recently, um, and it, it's a Wall Street Journal poll, but it showed some of those factors generationally side by side. And so the red lines are, uh, it's, it's a Gen Z millennial combo, which, eh, but it, I guess we'll go with it. But when we look at patriotism, very low compared to other generations. Uh, belief, religion, very low. Uh, having children, again, very low. So some of the things that we kind of, you know, faith, family, country, you know, those kind of things, it's not necessarily resonating with them that those are staples of, of, of what we need to do at, at their age. Um, and, but then there are some other things that are... That are, that are uh, that are more 
uh, hopeful. For instance, hard work is not that different from the other generations. Um, community involvement. Eh. I'm, I, I, think the, I think the boomers are not being... And the, certainly the silence. I think it's because they probably just physically can't be involved in the community as much as they used to. Um, but uh, tolerance, tolerance for... I, I was trying to figure that part out. I couldn't really get my head around that, except that especially silent generation, they just can't go and do things anymore. But then right here, this tolerance, they are way out in front for tolerance for other people. And, and that's actually a good thing. That's one of the things that can actually the church and the uh, Gen Z can agree on and can work on together is that we should be tolerant of other people. So the points of conflict I want to bring out here, um, and, and we, didn't, we didn't get a chance to talk about this one so much, but uh, truth, what is truth? Um, you know, are there things that are applicable to everybody and every generation and every country, they're going to probably say no. You know, we've seen that with millennials. We've seen, you know, we've seen that decline just continue and still declining. Uh, certainly sexual ethics. I mean, those people who aren't getting married until they're 30, they're, they're, not, uh, they're not living, the, you know, uh, a lifestyle that would uh, agree with what the Bible teaches, obviously. Um, and so it's not just a transgender, homosexual, those kind of issues. We're talking about people who um, are heterosexual but are living with people or uh, you know, ha- having their own lifestyle that they choose, right? Money, we've seen that. Um, uh, they're, they're not as generous giving to churches and, and those kind of institutions because they don't see the value of it. And then the technology, I mean, they, they are just all in this, this social media and technology to the point where it can distract them from thinking about ultimate issues and thinking about uh, uh, the kinds of religious questions that we're trying to get them to think about. So if we say, hey, you need to spend time in the Word, they're thinking, well, I'm spending, I only have so much time, you know, and I'm doing all these other things. Now, that's, that's a problem that can affect uh, believers as well, right? So this is a generation. I'm not necessarily thinking of, you know, totally uh, uh, of people who are not believers, but that's a generational issue, right? I mean, I see this all the time. I see students who bring. Um, I teach a high school class in my church, but I mean, I see people who this is their Bible, and the amazing thing about this is it. I think it has. 15 or 20, I don't know, maybe I'm exaggerating, but a lot. I could say 10 at least. 10 English versions of the Bible, probably, maybe more. But how many, just pick one version, how many of them have actually memorized anything? It's almost nothing, right? And so that's part of the problem is I can say, well, I have my Bible right here. I've got all these things, but I, I don't memorize any of it. And that's how, that's how the technology can uh, warp our way of thinking, making us reliant on that, you know. But we're not going to trash Gen Z because they are our future leaders, right? So, yes. On the money, yeah. they were doing less to the churches. Yeah. Um, how were they doing compared to... Um, 
millennials as far as uh, oh, it's just giving. Oh. Uh, GoFundMe pages. Can yeah. Do they respond well when there is like a hurricane or something? So if it's out the call, hey, send money. Now that's a that's a really good question. That I'm not so sure about as far as say blood, you know, like the American Red Cross, hurricanes, tragedies. They're probably more likely to go and do something than to give something, but it's possible. But but overall, if we're looking at just giving in general, the United States, I mean, we give a lot to charities, but church giving, the, when you go down that generational slide we looked at. Each generation gives less to churches, yeah, to religious causes, yeah. So, but I want to go to this next point because I really want us to think about, there are some points of resonance. There are some points where we and Gen Z uh, can work together and agree, right? And so one of them is diversity. You know, the book of Revelation says that every tongue and tribe is going to be praising God at the throne. We want every tongue and tribe to know and love uh, God. And so that's, that's one where we resonate with them. Now, do our churches reflect our community demographics? That's, that's another whole issue. But in theory, we should agree with them, right? Uh, empathy, they're very empathetic and tolerant. Uh, these, these two, openness and, and empathy, they're very... Uh, they're very tolerant and open. Um, and so I think that the gospel message should be a very open and tolerant message as far as we want everybody to hear, right? We want everybody to experience God, to know God, to love God, to be changed by God. And so we should be willing to go to the uttermost part of the world and share that, right? And we should empathize, what, with the sick and the, those in prison and the poor. Uh, I mean, that's just wrapped up in everything in the Gospels, right? And so those kind of causes, I think they will get on board with us, Kelton, uh, to, to do that. Um, and I think that a lot of them, these two things, I think that especially this emptiness, they don't have any bad experiences with churches because they've never been a lot of them. Now I'm general, I'm generalizing, I'm generalizing, but um, there's a lot of people who have baggage, bad experiences, whatever. Now I know that's a crutch a lot of times excuse, but a lot of these people have, they have nothing. It's just a blank slate. They know nothing. And so that's really more of the openness. I think a lot of them might be more open than we realize if we would actually talk to them um, and share with them. And then this emptiness part is that, um, where did it go? I put it away. But, you know, your virtual friends and your social media and your time comparing yourself with, with all these glamorous people who, who, who stage every part of their life, that's not going to fulfill you. You know, that's, that's why we're seeing all of the suicide and the depression and the uh, I can't cope. Um, so I, I think there's definitely an emptiness there and they're going to fill it with something. Um, everybody's going to worship something. So I think that that, those are some points where we can, um, we can have some, we can, uh, contact with them and some things will make sense with them. 
right? They're going to have a hard time with the truth and the sexual ethics. But uh, these will give us some ways, some avenues to um, connect with them and talk with them. So here's some, um, here's some things for us to think about. How do we respond? So I've really been wrestling with this because we talk about discipleship a lot. No, I'm not going to try to define discipleship for you today right now. But one of the things that I see just in working with, with, with high school kids who are getting ready to go into college is, um, and I would say this is true for college students too, early, freshmen and sophomores, we're probably going to have to do more hands-on step-by-step, helping them understand some basics. Um, and, and, and I think some of it is that because a lot of them are very docile and they're not, they're not rebelling against their parents as much and they're not going out and feeling like I, I, I've, got, I've got my keys to the car and I can go do whatever I want to because a lot of them aren't even driving. Um, they're not experiencing the work environment as much. They're not getting thrown into some of these jobs where all of a sudden you realize, oh, this is real life, you know. Um, so I think we're going to need to do some more step-by-step in our discipleship and, and do more hands-on helping them. Um, I think we are going to have to see diversity as a good thing. Um, and we're going to have to reflect that in our churches um, in different ways. Because if they're going to a public school in most... Now again, I'm talking about the whole United States. But if they're in a public school... Most places, they're in a very diverse environment. And that's normal to them, right? And so when they come to church, and if it's not very diverse, then they're trying to figure out why is this not diverse, you know? So I, I think we've got to figure out, okay, how do, we, how do we embrace this with that Book of Revelation <coughs> banner that we want everybody to be there, right, at the table, right? Um, I think we're going to have to understand this whole identity in Christ is crucial because I really think people with all the comparisons on social media and with the church becoming more and more uh, 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 not a cultural ally, um, that we're going to have to understand that um, our identity in Christ is going to have to trump any other identities and we're, in other words, we're not going to fit very well with the culture. And so we can't just say, I'm an American uh, and use that as our crutch. I hope that makes sense. I mean, because our cultural identity is going gonna, is gonna to start to separate more and more from the church. Okay? I, hope, I, hope, I think we all agree with that. I think we see that, right? So we're going to have to help our college students, our high school students, understand our identity in Christ is crucial. Okay. Now, we can have some questions about this in just a second. Our awareness of depression and social compa- uh, comparison. I think we really have to do, we really have to be aware that this is not just something that's out there, but more and more uh, high school students, even junior high students, early college, uh, this depression and anxiety is real, and we need to be able to help people through that and, and know what to do when there's a crisis. Right. Um, we need to identify uh, the moralist, moralistic therapeutic deism that we talked about, helping helping students not to embrace that and not to use that as a crutch uh, or to just kind of 
just absorb that. He, he really talks, you know, it's interesting. He says that this is not a, a true religion. He says it's a, paras, it's a parasitical religion. It, it has to have a host. And so it lives in the church, especially. Um, and, and it, yeah, anyway, we can talk more about that later. And I think we need to use, think about, so if people are not responding to truth, if, if they're not, if they can't grasp truth, sometimes we have to speak to them through art and, and nature um, and the big beauty, the big questions of life, because most people will have some kind of moment where they see the Grand Canyon or they have a baby or they see some wonderful, have some wonderful thing that they read or a book that really strikes them and they, they begin to ask some big questions. Um, and so the Bible asks a lot of big questions, but they may not, that may turn them off at first, right? So if you come in and say, I'm going to tell you this, blah, blah, blah. They may, well, I'm not, I'm not religious. So I don't care about that. Not even knowing that all of the ultimate questions are questions that are, you know, in the Bible that Jesus talks about. So these may be some things that we can respond to to help to help connect with them and help them understand. Okay. So questions. Do you guys have some questions or something you want to talk about, or you maybe you have something you've experienced and you? Yes, right here. I'm not sure if I'm um, correct on this statistics. Yeah. I heard that you know it's important for children. For you as a parent to establish their worldview, because by the time of thir- the age of 13, yeah. they established it. So it's either going to be a worldly worldview or it's going to be a godly worldview. So it's very important that we do that early on, get them out there, I guess, with hands on, let them see what's going on, let them have some um, mission experience in helping people. I mean, I don't know. I'm sitting back here and I have a son that's 19 years old, and basically what you said. He is like that. He's in his room all the time. He's to himself. He doesn't like to drive a whole lot. He's a wonderful person to get along with. He's great yeah. best friends, but he's just not as social as my other two. And yeah. I'm just, what do we do? My husband's a pastor, so what do we do? Right, right. Well, to your first questions, I think that's true. I mean, most people do. Most people do develop their worldview fairly early. Now, I still believe, I don't think this has changed. I do think, coming out of a college context, I do think people are still probably the most open they're ever going to be in those college days where they're still, they're still searching a lot of questions. And so I'm very, I'm very hopeful and excited that when we're engaging college students, a lot of times they are still open. Um, Bush, yeah. Is there a list or something so I could follow up? And, and yeah, well, I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you some handouts. And yeah, just just a second. So, but to follow that, yeah, I do think that that that's critical that we do all that early, and um, maybe we've got to start realizing that all of the technology stuff that we thought was so cool, and it is, it does save time and it does help. But we probably are going to have to start pulling back on that. Um, and there's a lot of there's several books that are on the list of people who said, you know, this we've gone too far, and we need to limit a lot of this technology, the use of the technology, because um, it's just overwhelming us, and we're starting to see a lot of bad side effects. Um, so as far as the discipleship thing, I was thinking we've got to make sure we're not just having a think tank, but we've got to have a workshop. And what I mean by workshop is, you know, a think tank, you sit around in leather chairs and you talk about all this great stuff. And 
Oh, that was, that was wonderful. Your point was brilliant. Touche. You know? And then you just go have dinner. And, Whoa. But a workshop, you get over there and... <laughs> A workshop, a workshop, you get, you get your hands dirty, right? You go over there, you get a saw. This is how you use a saw. And you can theorize it, but at the end of the day, you start sawing wood with that saw, right? And so that's what I'm, that's what I'm, and, and I know a lot of us are doing that. But sometimes we can drift a little bit more into theory and, uh, and not get our hands dirty. And so the younger you get their hands dirty, the better, I think. Right. Okay, that was a long-winded answer. I'm sorry. So, yeah, yeah, Bill. Gen Z, is any of this, in, from a Christian perspective, in a church context, is, is any of the way that they are an overcorrection from the boomers and the uh, Gen Xers and the millennials <coughs> just, pardon the expression, break people out of a daydream, just sucked at being Christians in front of them? Well, Christian Smith would say that they all learned MTD from the adults. So your answer is yes. Your answer is yes. And, and I think that part of that, part of that is because our cycle for a long time, the church was a cultural ally. So the church and the United States were culturally allies. And so there were a lot of givens that you could do a lot of things or you could say a lot of things and people would know what you mean. And people would, I mean, my parents were a great example of that. They were, they were older, they were, they were from the silent generation and there was a lot of, um, I mean, it just blows my mind sometimes. It was just like everything was one. The United States and the church and everything was just one happy family, you know? And... And, and so they didn't, so they didn't go through, they were not boomers. They didn't do the rebellion thing. It it was the cleavers in a lot of ways, you know? And so, but the problem is, is when the culture and the church are not allies and they start to break apart, then those, those implied things don't make sense anymore. And, and that's where you have to be a lot more intentional. And yeah, people drop, have been dropping the ball. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if I'm watching my heterosexual parents yeah. divorce, right? two things. Marriage is not a homosexual problem. Right. Two, I'm going to wait until I'm 30 so I can make sure I get it right. Yeah, and that's exactly right. A lot of them just don't want to commit because they just don't think they can handle it. They've seen so many broken marriages or so many problems. Um, but yeah, so it's, a lot of it is that. And it's not like they're driving themselves to travel ball on Sundays now. Mm. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right, right. And I, and I think that, yeah, and some of it was parents were trying to make things better for them, safer. Again, that's the whole safetyism thing. And, 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 and there, were, there were problems. There were, you know, we were trying to, you know, it's good that we have seat belts and it's good that, you know, people are, are not smoking as much maybe, or they're vaping now, but anyway, whatever. But there's, there's all those things, but eventually, yeah, I think it, it's caused some problems maybe. Not giving them that responsibility sometimes. Not, not that I want to go back to, you know, some of the, you know, not having seatbelts and airbags. Oh, we survived without airbags too. It wasn't a miracle. So, all right, so another question. Someone had a question? Anything? Yes, over here, yes. Yeah. 
I saw it on a few of the slides in charts. So that are we able to attribute the rise of depression and suicide to technology that interconnectedness that always being on? Are we able to say that's more than just correlation and kind of get to causes? Uh, that's a great question, and I I think. I think if you read her book, she makes a yes, she makes a good case for it. Um, and I think that the other two guys make a pretty good case for um, what's happening on the college campuses where where things have just gotten to the point where it's it's nutty. You know, I just can't I can't I just can't go there mentally from my experience, but. I, you know, I questioned that too. I thought this seems a little, maybe she's hyping this. She wants to sell a book. But when she shows, you know, she goes through and, and I just showed you maybe a tenth of those slides because I didn't want you to go to sleep. She just goes chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. And she goes through those long surveys going back to the 60s and 70s. Something happened around 2010 to 2012 that we can't explain and she says it's because of the cell phones, because it's just, it's just always in your face, right? I mean, if you allow it. Yeah. I mean, that's the key, if you allow it. So. I would say I tend to agree with her, but you read the book and decide. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a question? Oh, okay. Uh, right back here, yes. Uh, can I follow up with something with that? Yeah. Well, we're involved with the Council <coughs> Society, and it's proven statistics because of cell phones. The kids don't have a lot of social interaction yes. with people. So they're constantly with their head down yes. in a device, yes. and they can't make eye contact with you. So the virtual friendships that they have, they're always seeking the likes. They post these pictures. They do this. Right. If they don't get the amount of likes they need, yeah. their self-esteem goes down. Yes. And it goes down. Right. And it goes down to the point that it constantly spirals down. Yeah. And we can't get them back up because they ask Google. They don't ask parent. Right. They have virtual friends, yeah. but they don't have true friendships right. the way we grew up having. Right. So they go back to these friends... And they're no longer friends with that person that didn't like them anymore. So they reach out to someone else. And so they're constantly seeking a stranger right. that never makes a friendship with them. So then they feel alone. Yeah. I, I'm glad that you said that you, you've experienced that and seen that because that's part, I mean, and I see that with my own kids and some of their, their, their virtual friends and their real friend, you know, their Thankfully, we're involved in a church, and we're able to um, to have people con- you know consistently in their lives from church that that are are right there with them. But a lot of people don't have that. A lot of the Gen Z kids don't go to church, right? So they don't have those kind of friends. Maybe at school, um, but but they don't necessarily have people who are really in their corner. Constantly. The other thing I meant to say, I didn't bring this up. There's some really good books out now, too, that describe how uh, Twitter and Facebook and some of the others have purposely designed their uh, software and their setup and the way it looks and the way you interact to, to addict you, right? And then they actually hire people who are very good at uh, understanding addictive psychology, and they, they work on putting that into to it. So it's not just... It's not just some 
event that happened willy-nilly. There's actually people behind that pushing it and making it happen. So, but we're out of time. But if you have some questions.